for making uh, this possible. I had some interesting uh, conversations during uh, these two days that I'm here. So uh, thank you very much for the hospitality and especially thank you to you, Karen, uh, for making all this possible. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, does the secular have any theological relevance? And if so, what might this relevance consist in? Let me begin my paper with a brief elucidation of why this question became so important to me. Currently, I'm working on a book on public theology. Public theology, as some of you might know, is a comparably new field of theological research which emerged in the 1970s and was institutionalized one decade ago when the Global Network for Public Theology was founded and the International Journal of Public Theology was launched. Though there is surely no lack of definitions, it is still far from clear what public theology is and how it can be distinguished from other theological ventures such as political theology or theology of liberation. Notwithstanding this vagueness, however, there is a widespread consensus among public theologians that the public is to perceive as a secular domain. I should mention here that some public theologians, meanwhile, tend to delineate the public as a post-secular domain, but a closer look at their understanding of the post-secularity immediately makes clear that even for them, secularity remains to be a basic feature of the public sphere. In a sense, we could thus say that the assumption of the secular is a conditio sine qua non of the entire public theological endeavor. And I share this assumption unambiguously. <laughs> This, of course, does not necessarily entail that I endorse the whole public theological project as it stands, for otherwise I would not have to write another book on public <laughs> Indeed, I do have reservations about particular modes and perhaps even the mainstream of current public theology, but this does not take away the fact that the very possibility of public theology stands or falls with the existence of the secular. The notion of the secular, however, is not uncontested in theological circles, as you all know. Many theologians, particularly but not exclusively of British origin, flatly reject the secular as a meaningful theological concept. In their view, it appears to be a wrongful myth which can be traced back to a disastrous theological course setting in the late Middle Ages. From this historical turnaround, the critical, those critical theologians hold, a godless realm emerged which promotes human self-sufficiency and almost necessarily leads, on a theoretical level, to epistemological nihilism and on a practical level to a policy which at best unsuccessfully combats human violence and at worst itself proves to be violent. From the perspective of these scholars, any theological affirmation of the secular turns out to be heretical, and public theology, while endorsing the secular, can thus scarcely be more than a heterodox mock theology. It were these critical voices that urged me to take a closer look at the concept of the secular. For if the theological polemics was right, continuing the public theological project would indeed be a suicidal adventure, mm -hmm. at least for a theologian, who feels committed to orthodoxy. Accordingly, the quest came up as to whether the secular 
can theologically be legitimated in spite of the forceful counter-narrative told by so many influential theologians. The question is thus, can the secular be provided with a theological justification? Putting it this way immediately generates subsequent questions, since it is by no means clear what the notion of the secular exactly means or what its theologically, theological justification would look like. Of course, there are many ways to address such problems. To me, however, it seemed most promising to delve into the narrative about the origin of the secular as it is told by its most vehement critics. In fact, I assume that their historical reconstruction is largely right, but their theological assessment goes terribly astray. The narrative, as has been said, is a story about a groundbreaking shift in the late medieval period, a serious attempt to understand the theological reasons that motivated this shift, so I will argue, can show why the new course setting was unavoidable to secure the consistency of Orthodox Christian faith. And if this is true, we will also be compelled to reassess the long-term consequences of the late medieval turnaround. In my paper, I will try to show that the novel course setting can indeed be seen as a successful attempt to do justice to Christian orthodoxy, particularly to Christology. It was a reaction to shortcomings that theology was suffering from hitherto. The shortcomings proved to be insurmountable as long as theology remained exclusively committed to the ontological paradigm of analogy and participation. Once this paradigm was supplemented with univocal thinking, the problems became conceptually resolvable. So it was not only an ontological shift, but also the theological solutions it made possible which paved the way for the rise of the secular. If thus the secular owes its very existence to a successful attempt to reformulate Christian orthodoxy, we are entitled to take it as theologically justified. It is this thesis that I want to defend in the first part of my paper, and I have to warn you, this is the longest part, it's a very long part, so don't, uh, uh, yeah, don't be uh, angry. <laughs> in, in, a, in a very brief second part, I will set out some of the formal consequences that can be drawn from such a poly, uh, theological justification. Particularly, I will argue that the first historical appearance of the secular already spelled out some of its decisive characteristics, which now can be used to shape the profile of public theology. But public theology, I will argue, can be understood as an apologetic endeavor to promote the self-enlightenment of the secular. So I come to my first point, the theological justification of the secular. In a seminal book, first published in 1952, Etienne Gilson makes John Scotus responsible for a decisive turnaround in the history of thought, a turnaround which later became known as the Scotus rupture. By this term, contemporary theologians indicate a conceptual shift from an analogous to a univocal understanding of being. However, the term, as has been indicated, does not only depict a pivotal move in the history of thought, it also connotes a negative assessment, since the Scotus structure allegedly marks the starting point of a violent and nihilistic era that is Western modernity. From a theological point of view, 
The violent and nihilistic makeup of modernity then is can be explained by the fact that modern thought and practice claim to function deus non dareto as if God didn't exist. The Scotus structure is thus accused of giving rise to a godless sphere in which humans can deny their all-encompassing dependency on the divine and instead foster the myth of human self-sufficiency. As has been said, I do not think that the historical description of the Scotus structure is wrong, but I think that the virtue of intellectual probity requires us to have a closer look at the motivation that promoted the novel course setting. In fact, Scotus had decisively theological reasons to explore those new ways which eventually made possible the advent of the secular. Now, for two reasons, the most suitable theological tract to demonstrate this is Christology. On the one hand, Christology can be seen as a central, as perhaps the central subject of theology that claims to be Christian. For in a sense, we might say that all the other tracts of systematic theology, protology, eschatology, ecclesiology, soteriology, theological anthropology, or the doctrine of God, all these tracts are centered on the proper understanding of Christ and can be derived from it. On the other hand, it is in fact Scotus' writings where the primary nucleus of the secular can be detected. So I would like to argue that it was not primarily an, onto, primarily an ontological revolution, but rather a new, or better, an old, an orthodox understanding of Christ that paved the way to the secular. Before lo looking at Scotus' Christology, however, we first must get a grip on the problems encountered in the Christological undertakings of the 13th century that were framed by an analogous and participatory thinking. For that purpose, Let's have a brief look at Aquinas. For him, God is the pure act of being, actus purus, whereas creatures have their being from God by participation. In fact, Aquinas thinks that creaturely being is several times mediated, since God first causes the common being as a commune, which then is confined by distinguishable natures, which in turn are instantiated by individual substances. John Whipple rightly states that for Thomas, being is always realized in a finite substance only to a finite degree, end quote. In case of the human nature, the individual substance, or hypostasis, or suppositum, is the person. Following Boetius, Aquinas defines person as the individual substance of a rational nature. Persona is rationalis nature individua substantia. Uh, besides, sorry for my German pronunciation of, 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 of that, but that's, that's how I learned. Um, accordingly, a normal human individual instantiates his or her being by a mediated participation in the pure act of being, which is God. This general pattern, however, causes problems in Thomas's Christological account. For now, it is the second Trinitarian person through his, who, through his assumption of the human nature, instantiates the individual human being of Christ. Hence, Christ's being proves to be the divine actus purus and not a mediated participation in it. An awkward consequence of this is that Aquinas is hardly able to conceive of Christ's human nature as unconfused and unchangeable as the Chalcedonian definition requires. 
One can see this, for example, in the troublesome attempt to make sense of the third Constantinopolitan Council's doctrine of Christ's two wills. Prima facie, Aquinas affirms the doctrine when he asserts that will pertains to nature. So Christ's human will pertains to his human nature. But then Aquinas continues by saying that nature must not, quote, be considered absolutely, but as it is in the hypostasis. Hence, the human will of Christ had a determinate mode from the fact of being in a divine hypostasis. That is, it is always moved in accordance with the bidding, secundum nutum of the divine will, end quote. The verbatim affirmed, the human will of Christ still tends to be completely subordinated to the divine will and so threatens to vanish into thin air. And similar observations could be made with respect to Christ's human individuality and human dignity. I will not go into that, into that, but instead conclude that Thomas, due to his ontological premises, faces severe problems when attempting to conceptualize the human nature of Christ. It would surely go too far to accuse him of the monophysite heresy, since he makes all efforts to employ an orthodox language and to do justice to the conciliar definitions, <coughs> which he, in his time, knew better than anyone else. Yet his indebtedness to the participatory ontological paradigm does eventually not allow for an orthodox reconstruction of the two natures in Christ. What is the alternative that Scotus has to offer? First of all, it should be mentioned that for Scotus, the individualizing, the individualizing principle of the human being in general, and of Christ in particular, is not the hypostasis or the suppositum or the person, but an ontological determinant which he calls heketas or thisness. In the hierarchical structure of being, beginning with the, with the entirely undetermined conception of being as being, ins in quantum ins, the heketas signifies the last <coughs> positive ontological qualification possible. Now for Scotus, it is clear that the divine logos assumed the human nature with the corresponding heketas. The assumed nature possesses thus all positive qualifications of an individual human being and is not deficient, as one could see it in Aquinas' account, where the assumed human nature misses a corresponding hypostasis or suppositum. Just as with Thomas, Scotus asserts that the Logos takes over the place of the human person. For him, however, personhood does not designate a positive ontological qualification, but rather a negation. Personhood does not designate negation, namely the negation of actual dis and dispositional dependency. That means that a person as such does not maintain relationships and is not disposed to do so either. Of course, persons can have relationships, but they have them not by virtue of their, uh, uh, as such, but by virtue of their corresponding nature. For Scotus, the person is com incommunicable, and so he calls it I think almost poetically, ultimate solitude, ultima solitudo. If thus the divine person substitutes the human person in Christ, this does not diminish Christ's full humanity. On the contrary, the assumed human nature, as Richard Cross rightly notes, fails to be a person not in virtue of anything that it lacks, 
but in virtue of an additional relational property that it uniquely has. Christ is thus, on this account, fully human." Scotus's concept of personhood apparently allows for an understanding of the incarnation which brings, which brings Christ's full humanity into the closest possible nearness to the divinity. And this is nothing but an orthodox account of the hypostatic union. The unity of Christ is accomplished by the Logos' intrusion into the deepest loneliness of an individualized human nature, whereby this nature is united with the Logos. We will shortly see that this unification does not take place against the human will of Christ, but for now we only have to recognize that Scotus indeed provides an orthodox Christological account, since he is able to conceptualize both the independency of the two natures and their unification. Against this background, it hardly makes sense to accuse him of a quasi-Nestorian Christology, as for instance John Milbank did. At this point, it should be nearly needless to say that Scotus's Christological attempt succeeds just because he employs a concept of, of personhood which can univocally apply to God and the humans. The notion of the person must have exactly the same meaning in the Trinitarian and in the creaturely context. Otherwise, Christ's human nature would be united with a person that always exhibits greater dissimilarities than similarities with the human person. And this, in turn, would eventually lead to the annihilation of human individuality and human dignity, as we could see that in uh, Aquinas' approach. For now, we may thus conclude that Scotus's Christology can indeed be seen as a coherent and consistent reformulation of the Church's dogma on Christ. Of course, this is not to say that we should adopt his Christology as a whole today. The intellectual situation has dramatically changed since the turn from the 13th to the 14th century. Nevertheless, in his time, Scotus furnished an orthodox Christological account, and he was able to do so just because he dared to question analogical thinking at some point, not in general. But, so you may ask, what does all this have to do with the theological justification of the secular? To answer this question, we not only have to look at the metaphysics of Scotus' Christology, but also at, his, uh, at its soteriological implications. One of Scotus' most striking motives in this regard is the doctrine of the absolute predestination of Christ. The divine logos, Scotus argues, was from the beginning determined to assume a human nature. So it was not Adam's fall and its devastating consequences that provoked the incarnation, but the coming of Christ constituted the final goal of creation from the outset. Why did Scotus introduce this doctrine? which significantly departed from the teachings of most of his predecessors and contemporaries. The answer can be found by looking at a famous passage from Scotus's Reportata Parisiensa, where it reads, quote, Firstly, God loves himself. Secondly, he loves himself in others, and this is pure love. Thirdly, he wants to be loved by another who is able to love in the highest possible way. And this is speaking of the love of an outsider. And fourthly, he foresees the union of the one's nature who ought to love him in the highest possible way, as if nobody was fallen. 
end quote. So Scotus' starting point here is God's self-referential love, which in the second step is to be mediated by others. This mediated love, as Scotus rightly states, is pure love, amor castus. To achieve this mediated love, however, another must exist who is able to love God in the highest possible way, and this, of course, is Christ. Notably, however, Scotus emphasizes that this love is the love of an outsider, alicuius extrinseci. It is most likely that this assertion pertains to the human nature of Christ, since the Logos belongs to, the God, to God's self-love. In the fourth step, God foresees his loving unification with that human nature that ought to love him in the highest possible way, And finally, Scotus stresses that all this happens irrespective of the fall. The absolute predestination of Christ is thus motivated by God's ultimate will to love himself through others, and it is Christ in whom God and the other lovingly unite. Once again, we encounter here the Chalcedonian pattern, but now it becomes clearer than before why the independency of the human nature is so important for scholars. Only an independent being can account for that otherness that is needed to mediate and reflect God's self-love and so to bring about pure love. To be able to love himself in others, therefore, God has to give up, or have, sorry, God has to give rise to a real other, because pure love necessarily presupposes the existence of two distinct partners. Now, it should as come as no surprise that for Scotus, God's need for otherness forms the central motive for creation. By the way, it hardly deserves mentioning that the expression God's need for otherness, of course, does not point at a deficiency in God, but rather indicates a voluntarily self-imposed need. Creation in that case must have an independent and autonomous status to embody the otherness that is required to exercise pure love for God and so to reflect God's self-love. If creation, in contrast, did not possess this independency and autonomy, but rather participated in God, it simply could not provide for that otherness. So creation must be seen as an independent and autonomous space. At the same time, however, it also must be seen as a space whose ultimate goal is the loving unification with God. And so, it is Christ, or more precisely speaking, the human nature of Christ, which brings creation into its fulfillment. Christ's human nature can thus be seen as the culmination point of an endogenous creaturely dynamic that tends to unite with the divine in love. When applied to creation in general and to humans in particular, Scotus calls the unification with God glorification. With this term, he delineates the creaturely consummation, which on the one hand cannot be the result of the creature's own accomplishments or merits, simply because glorification presupposes an antecedent act from God's side, namely God's loving offer. On the other hand, however, glorification entails by no means pure creaturely passivity, since the unification with God necessarily presumes a free consent to God's loving offer. In any other case, the idea of love between God and the other would not make sense. This is, by the way, the reason why Scotus was so determined to secure 
the doctrine of the two wills of Christ, for the hypostatic union would not have been accomplished without Christ's human will freely consenting to it. Unfortunately, I cannot go deeper into uh, Scotus's concept of the free will here. It must be clear, however, that this concept is stronger than, for instance, that of Aquinas. Whereas for Aquinas, the will is unavoidably attracted by the good. For Scotus, the will, as Ludwig Honefelder put it, can be seen as the original faculty of self-determination. Accordingly, the will can orientate itself to different goals. Building on Anselm, Scotus distinguishes between the will's affection for comfortableness, affectio commodi, and its affection for justice, affectio justitiae, whereby the latter epitomizes the will to love others for their own sake. It leaves no doubt that for Scotus the affection for justice is the appropriate orientation of the will, but in fact the will, as has been said, has different options, and humans oftentimes choose the wrong option and turn their will against others because they are affected by sin. That is why they are in need of redemption. Contrary to Anselm, however, Scotus does not think that the humans had to be redeemed from their sins by a bloody sacrifice which restored the moral order. Redemption for him is rather put into effect by a compensatory love for God that Christ performed as a meritorious act. In a sense, we might thus say that redemption is just a secondary effect of the incarnation which would have been taking place anyway. Christ is the exemplar that shows us to perform our, how to perform our free will, namely as love for others for their own sake. Needless to say, this love should not be the guiding principle, should not only be the guiding principle for the human's orientation towards God, but also for their inner godly ethics. At this point, you might ask once again, what does this all have to do with the theological justification of the secular? Uh, yet I think that we have now reached the point where we can put the pieces together and uh, answer the questions. The thesis I would like to defend is that the secular can be seen as a conceptual extension of Scotus's doctrine of Christ's human nature. Put differently, Scotus' understanding of Christ's humanity forms the conceptual nucleus of the secular. So what then is the secular? Five points. First of all, it is the human sphere insofar it is detached from the divine. This detachment, however, is primarily not the result of human sinfulness, but of God's self-love, which he wants to be mediated by others. Out of the abundance of his love, he wishes to bestow others with his love. And for the sake of their glorification, he wishes them to love him in response. If the concepts of otherness, detachment, independency, or autonomy are not taken seriously, then the concept of will isn't either. A second related feature of the secular is that it is the realm of human freedom. After all, the human response to God's antecedent act of love can only mediate this love if it turns out to be an unconditional and free response. If in contrast, the humans were dependent on God in this respect, God would only play a game with himself. Moreover, to highlight the unavoidability of freedom for a meaningful concept of love also entails to employ a univocal use of the term. 
It simply does not make sense to conceive of an authentic and mutual love relationship at which the partner's faculty to love exhibits greater dissimilarities than similarities. Thirdly, the secular is a domain in which humans have to organize their mutual relations as well as their relations to other beings out of their freedom and their ability to love. This implies to arrange worldly affairs according to the standards of reason. In my sketchy overview, I did scarcely delve into Scotus's reflection on morality, even though his account of the natural law would have largely supported this view. But the consequence that an inner-worldly ethics should be a reasonable ethics can also be drawn from the aforementioned principles. For if one seeks to treat others for their own sake, then this cannot be done without taking into account their oftentimes differing viewpoints. Accordingly, the different perspectives perspectives have to be mediated in order to justify the right course of conduct in this particular situation. The process of mediation, however, has to be based on reasonable arguments accessible to everyone involved, for otherwise those others would not get the impression to be treated for their own sake. The fourth point is that within the secular, both the need for redemption and God's redemptive grace are present at the same time. God's loving offers, so we have heard, must be freely affirmed by the humans, but this, of course, happens, if at all, only partially. Due to our sinfulness, we cannot accomplish or imitate Christ's humanity and achieve full union with the divine. On this account, the secular today indeed displays the widespread nihilism and violence that the theological critics of the secular declare to be its essence. On that point, I fully agree with them. On the other hand, however, God's loving offer is still valid and never ceases to be. Respecting its independency and autonomy, God does not interfere with the secular, but he constantly courts and caresses it like a maniac lover. And this brings me to my fifth and last point. Though being autonomous and detached from God, I would like to argue the secular still has a teleological structure. Being based on human freedom, the secular ought to realize this freedom in an authentic and credible way. In the first instance, this means to implement the reasonable ethics we've just been talking about, but there's more to it. For even if it were possible to accomplish an entirely just world in the future, the injustices of history still would remain to be a painful form in the flesh. By virtue of its internal logic of human freedom, therefore, the secular is committed to have hope for all the victims of history who are long since dead and forgotten. Let me conclude this first part by recapitulating that, building on Scotus's understanding of Christ's human nature, the secular can be depicted as a realm detached from God, which possesses its basic principle in human freedom. This freedom is to be authentically realized by the implementation of reasonable ethics and by fostering the hope that, in spite of the human incompetence to accomplish this, um, the hope that all evils of history once will be healed. Though the current appearance of the secular indeed encourages the suspicion that, is, that it is nothing but a narcissistic space of nihilism and violence, the secular is still built, created, and courted by God, and thus theologically justified. 
So I come to my second and much shorter uh, point, uh, some theological consequences. I think one of the greatest achievements of Scotus's Christology can be seen in the fact that it paved the way for a completely new understanding of unity. Whereas the analogical or participatory paradigm presupposes, so to speak, from the outset an ontological unity in which creation as a whole steadfastly sus suspends on the divine, Scotus broke up this bond by introducing a forceful concept of otherness. Perhaps this move deserves more than anything else the designation Scotus structure. But of course, Scotus's intention was not to establish a godless space of human self-sufficiency, on the contrary. For him, the act of creation was a voluntary act of the divinity by which God gave space to others in order to eventually unite with them. Since the realization of this unity, however, depends on the free consent of the others, God had to take a risk when he decided to pursue just this kind of unity. Apparently, a unity of love is more valuable than a unity of mere dependence, because a unity of love unites independent selves that commit themselves freely to their unification. So we could say that the Scotus rupture is a move from ontological unity to unity based on related freedoms. Which theological consequences can now be drawn from the Scotus rupture? My suggestion is that theology should promote the self-enlightenment of the secular so that the aforementioned teleological structure becomes part of the individual and collective self-understanding of people as well as of the general awareness. A theology pursuing this goal can rightly be called a public theology. I have elsewhere given a more substantive account of how the self-enlightenment of the secular might be achieved. In the following, however, um, I will only give a very formal sketch, since I have meanwhile realized that many different ways are possible in this regard. Now, a couple of years ago, Max Steckhaus, one of the leading figures of the public theology movement, made the suggestion to identify public theology with apologetics. But he hardly said what this means. Building on Steckhouse, Eden Graham has recently argued that, quote, an apologetic public theology is concerned less with words than actions, and that a defense of faith is to be found in its power to liberate and transform situations of injustice and human suffering, end quote. Though this statement is certainly not mistaken, one can still wonder whether it doesn't fall prey to the suspicion that public theology rather serves external interests than pursuing a genuine theological agenda. Slightly differing from Graham, I would thus suggest that an apologetic promotion of the secular's self-enlightenment is concerned with publicly championing two separate claims. First, the claim that there is something which is of ultimate significance for every human being. And second, the claim that this ominous something can be found in the Christ event. Sure, at first glance, this distinction may seem quite mysterious, for wouldn't it be more appropriate to simply claim that the Christ event is of ultimate significance for every human being 
as it is, after all, this single claim that lies at the bottom of Christian faith. We should nevertheless make this distinction, and I will shortly explain why. But for now, let's take for granted that we make this distinction, and let's have a look at the first claim. So my assumption is that public theology has to espouse a universal <coughs> truth claim, universal truth claim concerning the assertion that there is something which is of ultimate significance for every human being. I'm well aware that making universal truth claims is an undertaking not valued highly in our postmodern times. Kevin Van Hoser, for instance, asserted that for postmodern theologians, truth is nothing but, quote, a compelling story told by persons in positions of power in order to perpetuate <coughs> the way of seeing and organizing the natural and the social world, end quote. Likewise, John Thiel has argued that, quote, a universal or foundationalist justification is a logical impossibility. Christian claims are and remain particular, end quote. Countless other quotations could be added here. Yet the decisive question is whether they are right. In a certain sense, they are apparently wrong, since any denial of truth claims must necessarily claim to be true. Otherwise, the speaker would not make a meaningful statement at all and eventually get lost in a performative contradiction. <coughs> On a logical level, therefore, the denial of truth cannot be maintained seriously. But there is more to it than simple logical error. Within the context of his transcendental pragmatic approach, Karl Otto Apel, German philosopher, uh, he's well known in, in the English-speaking world, I heard that today, um, has convincingly shown that no rational subject can avoid making truth claims. Any denial of this unavoidability would again lead to a performative contradiction. And likewise, Apple has demonstrated that neither the classical correspondence theory of truth nor modern evidence or coherence theories can sufficiently explain how such truth claims are to be validated. Only, so he says, a consensus theory, theory which on its part integrates all the other theories, can serve for a satisfying explanation. According to this theory, a truth claim is valid only on the condition that all possible interlocutors consent to it. Since the community of possible interlocutors is virtually universal, each truth claim is universally addressed. And from this follows that definite truth, that is the final consensus of the universal interpretative community, is but a regulative idea which can never be accomplished in the real world. In spite of this inaccessibility of definite truth, however, the procedural requirements for the treatment of truth claims are quite clear. They have to be validated through an intersubjective discourse which aims at consensus. How does this relate to the apologetic task of public theology? Now, from Apple, we can learn that making truth claims is an operation unavoidable for rational subjects. Secondly, Apple has shown that any truth claim is universally addressed. If Christian faith is thus based on the constitutive belief that something is ultimately significant for every human being, any factual utterance of this claim necessarily implies the making of a universally addressed truth claim. Thirdly, Apple has shown that the validation of such truth claims is to be carried out by means of an intersubjective discourse. From this we can conclude that the Christian community unavoidable makes truth claims addressed to virtually everyone.
If, therefore, apologetics is said to be charged with the public defense of universal truth claims, and well, of the truth claim that something is ultimately significant for every human being, this may be at odds with the postmodern signature of our time, but certainly not with the logic of speaking, nor with the very nature of theology. Now the question arises as to which end public theology has to initiate and maintain such a societal discourse and ultimate significance. Though the notion of a defense might suggest that the primary purpose is to win a rhetoric competition, in fact this is not the case. Apologetic public theology rather seeks to foster such a discourse in order to urge the participants to take an existential decision on what is of ultimate significance for them. For if public theology rightly claims truth for the proposition that there is something which is of ultimate significance for every human being, everyone faced with this claim has to take a stance towards it. Of course, for the time being, people can ignore such a claim, and in fact they do so. But the more they are exposed to it, the less they can avoid forming an opinion. Hence the purpose of public discourse is to invite people to decide whether there is something which is of ultimate significance for them, and if this question is answered affirmatively, then they have to say what this something in fact might be. I'll come back to this, but first we have to answer the question why the constitutive belief of Christians is to be divided into two separate claims, only one of which can be conceived as a truth claim. The answer is that only this part of the constitutive belief of Christians can be validated discursively, whereas the other cannot. To understand why this is so, we should remember what we've learned from Scotus, namely that faith is a free affirmation of God's loving offer. Hence, the entire Christian existence draws upon the performance of freedom, and it's exactly this performance of freedom which cannot be validated by means of an intersubjective discourse because it belongs to the inner world of the believers to which other subjects do not have immediate access. An assertion, the semantic referent of which is per definition not accessible to universal interpretative community, logically refuses any intersubjective examination. If, therefore, someone claims to believe in the ultimate significance of the Christ event, this statement cannot be validated by providing verifiable arguments. Yet the speaker still makes a claim which is universally addressed, since the corresponding statement insists to be valid for everyone who is capable of understanding it. Now, it was Jürgen Habermas who designated this type of claims as sincerity claims. He also stresses that sincerity claims, contrary to truth claims, can be validated only by means of consistent behavior. Quote, that a speaker means what he says, it's very gentle language, but uh, I quote it here. That a speaker means what he says can be made credible only by the consequences of his behavior, not by providing reasons. That's why addressees, having accepted a, a sincerity claim, can, to a certain extent, expect behavioral consistency, end quote. If thus the validation of sincerity claims requires acts in accordance with the semantic content of the utterance, the assertion to belief in the ultimate significance of the Christ event must be made believable by acts in accordance with the Christ event's significance. No matter how differently Christians may interpret the significance, what they in fact do, 
the concordant behavior will appear as a form of witnessing. Hence, Christians have to bear witness to their faith by acting in a way that corresponds to what they claim to believe. From this, we may conclude that an apologetic public theology also has to care about a mode of witnessing that does justice to the content of Christian faith. So public theology is not only charged with fostering the public discourse and ultimate human significance, but also has to display the Christian faith practice in a way that at least makes credible that ultimate human significance can be found in the Christ event. As discourse, therefore, apologetics seeks to invite people to make an existential decision on what is of ultimate significance for them, and as witnessing, it seeks to invite people to recognize this significance in the Christ event. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm well aware that this account of public theology and its contribution to the self-enlightenment of the secular is somewhat dissatisfying since it remains, as it has been said, very formal. The adventure thus begins once we reflect about different strategies to put on stage a public discourse and ultimate significance, and once we consider how the Christian practice of faith must look like in order to be a convincing witness of the livability of a Christian existence. So the concrete shape of the means to achieve um, the, the self-enlightenment of the secular, the concrete means, are still under discussion. The goal, however, is clear. The secular must understand what it is, namely a sphere that is willed, created, and courted by God, and that eventually has to turn to God. Thank you for the attention.